This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia.
or good morning to you, good day to you, wherever you happen to be as you listen to this radio program. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and it's Monday night, the 16th of January, 2006, and I'm glad to be with you again. Uh, Radio Orbit, every Monday, from 11 until 2, and tonight, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do. We've got a great guest uh, for longtime listeners of the show. You'll be familiar with Jay Widener. He's been on the show before, uh, back in, I think it was July, maybe August of last year. But at any rate, Jay Widener will be on the program in about 55 minutes, and we'll be talking to him live from Washington State. I was going to say Seattle, but I think he actually moved recently. I don't think he's actually living in Seattle anymore. Maybe he is. But at any rate, he's still in Washington State, and we'll be talking with Jay a little bit later about, well... Uh, he has a new documentary that is out called 2012, The Odyssey. I'm sure we'll talk about alchemy. I don't know if we'll talk about uh, the Undai Cross that we talked about on our last program at all. If you're interested in that, that's available on the archives for anybody who'd like to go back and hear what uh, Jay had to say the last time he was on the program. He wrote, the reason that we originally spoke, uh, I, was a f- I was familiar with Jay and a fan of his because of a book that he wrote in uh, cooperation with another guy who's been on the program. His name is Vincent Bridges. And back in like 1997, they wrote a book called A Monument to the End of Time. And uh, in a strange set of circumstances, I came across that book, and I was fascinated with it and sort of went on my own personal adventure uh, following uh, the trail that that book sort of lays out and ended up in France on my honeymoon in uh, the southern part of France in a little town called Undai, or Hende. And anyway, the book is written about this particular monument in Hende, France, and it ties into uh, a very enig- uh, enigmatic figure in the history of uh, 19th century Europe. And it was this character who went by the name of Falconelli. And we don't know a whole lot about Falconelli. There were a couple of books that were penned with his name as author, but nobody ever really determined who he was. And he was, uh, in many uh, circles, considered to be the last or one of the last living alchemists. And that may sound sound strange, but uh, the story of alchemy is one that has been greatly oversimplified over the years. And uh, most of us don't know a whole lot about Uh, the true nature of what was happening at that time, and perhaps even today. Uh, So anyway, we'll talk with Jay Widener about alchemy, and we'll talk about his new documentary, 2012, The Odyssey. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about pop culture and uh, just what's going on around the planet right now. And that'll be a fun uh, conversation. We will have the music uh, tonight, actually, will be provided by a wonderful band of musicians from Italy, that go by the name the Wimshurst's Machine. Yes, I don't know how many times I'll have to say that tonight, and we'll see if I can say it successfully every time. The Wimshurst's Machine. But they go by TWM for short, so I may start to cheat a little bit after I've said their name enough times where I've impressed you that I'm not going to screw it up. So anyway, music by the Wimshurst Machine. We've got Jay Widener coming up uh, at the top of the hour at midnight. And between now and then, we'll do all the stuff we usually do. All right, space weather, talk about some news, and see what else is happening. It is Martin Luther King Day. We'll try to do a little bit of uh, 
something a little special that I'll do uh, toward the end of the first hour real quickly uh, in honor of uh, that revolutionary. And, um, well, let's just get on with it, I guess. All right, thanks uh, for the emails. Hi to everybody who listens over the web, over the archives. Uh, We'll do space weather in just a bit, but let me give out uh, contact information real fast, and maybe we'll talk about some upcoming guests real quickly here. Uh, The email address is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. You can always reach me there if you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, ideas for shows, whatever. Just uh, send me an email at orbitradio at AOL.com, and I'll certainly be glad to read it and uh, try to respond to you, okay? Also, uh, the website, if you're interested in lots of the stuff that we talk about on the program, you can find all kinds of it at Mike Hagan, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com, MikeHagan.com. Thanks to my uh, my wonderful friend and brother out in California, Larry Norager, who does all the web work. He has done just a fantastic job over the last six months or so, not even. I guess we sort of got together in uh, late August, early September. So for four months or so, Larry's been working on the website and just doing astonishing things, and I couldn't be more pleased with uh, the relationship that we're building and hopefully making a cool, fun site for people out there to um, <clears throat> to go check out and uh, click around. All the shows are on there. The archives are there. You can download them or you can listen to them for free. All that stuff is available. Just go there to MikeHagan.com and you can uh, see what uh, what we've been doing on the website, okay? And with that, uh, uh, with regard to the website, I guess I should add that we've finally got the podcast deal worked out where we figured out, or Larry, I should say, figured out how to uh, set up the RSS feed so people can now... Uh, set up their RSS readers and their podcast players to automatically download uh, new episodes or new uh, new segments of uh, of the show, and they'll just magically appear in your RSS mailbox uh, through the miracles of modern technology. So anyway, go to the website. There are a couple of uh, announcements on the front page there, and you can... Uh, uh, read all about it right there, and the uh, the podcast is one of those things. And you can download the RSS reader and uh, subscribe to the podcast. And like I said, then you can get the program automatically delivered to you every time a new one is uploaded onto the web. How cool is that? I love it. Great technology and really neat stuff. So, all right. So for all of you who have been saying for the last six months, get the podcast, get the podcast. We got the podcast. Now see if it works. All right. See if it works, and then email me and let me know if it works. And if it works, tell me, and if it doesn't work, we'll try to fix it, okay? All right, one of the other announcements that's on the front page of the website is uh, an announcement that has to do with me and Joanna, Joanna Harcourt-Smith. Again, for people who know the show, you know that Joanna's been on the program here. She is the former Joanna Leary, uh, Timothy Leary's former wife uh, back uh, back in the day. And uh, at any rate, Joanna and I uh, co-hosted, what was it, I guess uh, a conference, I guess is the best, uh, the best name for it. But anyway, we, we co-hosted this conference in Massachusetts in October. And it was called the Bioneers by the Bay. It was, it was a satellite conference of the, of the, the major Bioneers conference that happens in uh, San Rafael, California every October. And it was 
something that was done in concert and coordination with the San Rafael, uh, San Rafael conference. And anyway, Joanna and I uh, co-hosted the podcast for three days uh, during the entire conference, and it was done from the uh, University of, Ma- of uh, Massachusetts at Dartmouth. And anyway, we got along real well, and I met uh, some of the people that she's involved with out there. An organization is called the Marion Institute, and we eventually uh, decided that we would make a proposal uh, to the Marion Institute to do a program together, Joanna and I. And just last week we found out that they approved it. And so I'm going to start to be doing uh, another uh, another project, sort of a side project. It'll be a once-a-month uh, once deal, and we'll... Uh, we'll do a program together, Joanna and I, and it won't be affiliated with Radio Orbit. Uh, it'll be um, a podcast, webcast uh, sort of deal. It'll have a separate website and all that stuff. And we've actually uh, titled the name of the program. The name of the program will be called Future Primitive. And there are a number of reasons that we, a number of reasons that we chose that title. But anyway, Future Primitive. That's something that uh, hopefully some of my listeners will uh, enjoy and look forward to in the next month or two. Hopefully we'll do our, sh- our our first show in February. And the concept behind the show basically is this, is that uh, Joanna, who lives in Spain, uh, will be sort of the roving European reporter. And she's going to gallivant around the continent over there and interview interesting people. And then I, on the other hand, will try to interview interesting people over here that are sort of uh, related to the people that she is interviewing over there. And then we will uh, come together and we will both air our respective interviews with the people that we've talked to and then have some uh, some conversation about it. So that's sort of the rough idea. It hasn't been uh, set in stone, certainly not. We're just trying to figure out what we're going to do right now. But anyway, we got the, the go-ahead to do it. They're going to, uh, you know, at least... Uh, uh, fund it so that so that the thing can can happen. So so that's coming up. Mike Hagen and Joanna Harcourt Smith, or I should say Joanna Harcourt Smith and Mike Hagen, uh, will be doing Future Primitive coming up to a website near you in the near future. So anyway, I'm all excited about that. And um, thanks to some of the people who have been fans of this program who have helped uh, uh, helped along with that relationship too. And you know who you are. All right, so lots going on uh, tonight. Jay Widener, 2012, The Odyssey, uh, a new documentary that uh, Jay has produced. I'm not sure if it's been released yet. If it hasn't, it will be very soon. Uh, it features uh, Gene Houston, John Major Jenkins, Greg Braden, William Henry, lots of other folks. John Major Jenkins, of course, will be on the program in a couple of weeks on February 6th. He's the author of Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. Of course, Terrence McKenna wrote the uh, introduction to that book, and John Major Jenkins just made uh, a huge shockwave that was sent through archaeology and uh, uh, certain areas of history when that book came out. Still making waves today, John Major Jenkins will be on the program on February 6th. But tonight, Jay Widener, uh, next week, a star. The former Paradise Newland will be on the program. We'll be talking about water birth and uh, lots of the other things that Paradise is up to on Hawaii, or on the island of Hawaii. Uh, John Major Jenkins, uh, two weeks after that, Dr. Paul Laviolette in between on the 30th of January. I can't believe it. I'm so excited to talk to Dr. Paul again. Uh, we've got Dennis McKenna, Stephen Buhner, 
uh, a gentleman named Neil Haig, who's an amazing artist and does all the artwork for David Icke. Uh, he's going to be on the program sometime in the next couple months. Him and I have been speaking over email. And lots of other stuff coming up. So stick around and keep listening, and we'll keep trying to do stuff that's fun and entertaining. And uh, what else? I don't know. Maybe intelligent. Okay, so let's play some music. I said that the music tonight would be provided by a band called the Wimshurst's Machine. Well, they're fantastic, and they are... Uh, going to be on the air in just a moment here. Tonight, we will start off with a song. Now, this is Charming Mechanics from the Wimshurst Machine. This is Mike Hagen. You listen to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right. Yeah, there's the first one we'll hear tonight, but that's a band called The Wimshurst's Machine, an Italian group, and we'll be featuring their music the entire program tonight. You can find out more about them on the web. Just go up to uh, uh, to my uh, my website. Just uh, jump on the web and go over to MikeHagan.com and click on the Music tab, and you'll see a bunch of information about the Wimshurst Machine, and you can also download one of their songs there, a song that's actually called Magic Lights. And uh, that's available on the web, okay? So also on the web, uh, you can find links to Jay Widener's site. Jay's going to be on the program in about 35 minutes here. Uh, but if you're interested in finding out some of the things that we'll be talking about, again, get on the web and go to www.jaywidener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R, jaywidener.com. Or if you'd like to go to my site, mikehagan.com, and Jay's uh, plastered all over the front page there, you should have no problem getting over to his site from mine, okay? All right, so that's what we've got going on. Jay Widener in just a little while, the music of the Wimshurst machine for the rest of the night. Again, you can download one of their songs over on the music page at the website, and we'll be featuring some more stuff from them as we as we move along through the program tonight, okay? All right, uh, let's see. What else do we want to talk about? I told you about the podcasting thing. I'm happy about that. I told you about the show with Joanna. That's cool. All right, space weather. Stardust update. Uh, NASA's Stardust capsule which was a probe that was launched a couple of years ago to collect some samples of dust from a comet uh, that's flying around out there, landed Sunday uh, in Utah in the desert. It followed sort of a, uh, a pretty exciting, fiery descent through the atmosphere of our planet, and uh, they successfully, apparently, collected the m- module, the capsule, and are now analyzing it. Who knows what uh, it will tell them. The capsule's heat shield uh, is what supposedly would protect uh, whatever was inside the samples from the heat of reentry. It gets really hot. It gets like probably, I think it's over 4,000 degrees actually uh, Fahrenheit, the temperature uh, around the capsule as that thing is reentering the atmosphere. So anyway, looks like it was successful. I saw a really funny photo, actually, though. Somebody had posted a photo on the web of uh, one of the press release photos that NASA had put out, and it showed, like, uh, these two guys in a laboratory, and both of them were wearing sort of protective gear, the white uh, sort of biohazard uh, hazmat suits that some, some of those guys wear when they're doing that sort of work. And they were in this sort of laboratory looking at the what apparently was supposed to be the, the the capsule itself, I guess. At least that's what the picture said. And then there's another guy there. There's like some long-haired guy, uh, a scientist of some sort, I imagine. I don't know. But anyway, he looks sort of young. There's like this long-haired young guy who's just sort of poking around at the thing. And he's wearing like a pair of jeans and a sweater. No protective gear whatsoever. And it doesn't appear to, it doesn't appear to be a... Uh, you know, that sort of a secure environment, certainly not like some hermetically sealed lab. It certainly doesn't seem like it from the photos that I saw. So I don't know. Who knows? It's, it's just like that, that silly Genesis probe that they tried to catch with uh, uh, with a net and a helicopter a year ago. I mean, it's just it's like vaudeville to me. I just don't even get it. But anyway, good luck, and I hope uh, I hope it solves all of our problems, the stardust that they just collected. 
uh, from Comet Wild 2. That was the name of the comet, actually. It was called Wild 2. Not T-O-O. T-W-O. All right. Um, if you've noticed, Venus is gone. I told you last week that we only had a couple more days of watching Venus in the nighttime sky or in the evening sky as it sort of sets with the sun. But as it uh, disappears in the evening, it begins to appear in the morning. So that's what's happening right now. The brilliant planet of Venus is uh, now on the opposite side of the sun. And uh, really interesting photography, actually. I mention all the time these wonderful cameras uh, that we have flying around in space that allow us to look at the star, our star. And over the last few days, Venus has been transiting the sun, in other words, moving across the field uh, from, the, uh, from the east to the west. And Mercury is actually moved into the field as well uh, from the west to the east. And so you have uh, it, on Lasco, on the Soho Lasco C3 cameras right now, uh, you have Venus and, uh, and Mercury. It's quite a stunning uh, sight if you see what, uh, what's being shown on the cameras right now, or at least over the last couple of days. I didn't look today, but I think that they're still both on the cameras, still both in the field of view right now, I think. Hey, that, that, that's, that, that's a bitch I have for NASA, by the way. You know, when we are shown these images from the Soho Lasco satellite, that I'm very fond of, actually. They are reversed. In other words, things that show up on the left-hand side of the screen are actually the east uh, from our vantage point, if you can think of it that way. And things on the right-hand side of the screen are the west. And so when you're looking at it, if you see something move from the right to the left uh, across the face of the sun, for example, uh, it's actually moving from west to east. And so we always have to have to sort of clarify that in our minds when you're looking at that sort of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, they've got all these fancy satellites. They've got all this amazing technology. They do all this stuff, chase comets around and collect stardust and whatever. And they can't just write a simple algorithm to switch the freaking screen around so that west is really west and the left-hand side of my screen really is California, so to speak. Anyway, tell them to get that done, all right? Anybody out there who has any pull with the, uh, with the scientists at NASA, I'd appreciate it. All right, what else is happening? It's the 20th anniversary in a couple of days of uh, Rich Terrell's discovery of a couple of moons of Uranus, Cordelia, and Ophelia. 20 years ago must have been a real hot time for uh, uh, discoveries around Uranus. Every time I look at the history of what happened in space uh, for the last couple of months, I'm finding all kinds of things out about Uranus. So it must have been a big time uh, discovery uh, period for the planet Uranus back around 20 years ago, 1986. It shows you how little that we knew about our own solar system even uh, just a, a short 20 years ago. We still know very little about it. Uh, we're learning more all the time. All right, uh, let's see. What else? Orbit. You know, we should jump over to cyberspace orbit real fast. I should see what Ken's been up to. As I said, uh, there was a pretty interesting transit of Venus and Mercury in front of the sun on the SOHO cameras recently. And uh, if you go over to cyberspaceorbit.com, Kent has some of that stuff highlighted. And you can get there from my site as well. But uh, 
Anyway, cool stuff going on. There was a really strange, um, another strange event that happened on the sun, however, and and, a, and another big gamma ray burst that happened sort of correspondingly. And, we, and we've been following this stuff pretty closely now ever since the tsunami. The tsunami. We, we don't even have to say when, where, or what. It just goes by that name now. But anyway, of course, December 26th or whatever, last year, 2004, not last year, a year and uh, a month ago. Anyway, ever since that happened, and Dr. Paul Laviolette has been making these correlations between gamma ray bursts and uh, the actual effect that a gamma ray burst can have on a star, a local star, like our star, and consequently our planet, uh, it's become quite interesting. And there have been a quite, there, there have been quite a few stories that have come out in mainstream scientific journals over the last year that have, that have, that have dealt with gamma ray bursts. And they're quite provocative, the things that are being said. The gamma ray burst is still quite an interesting and mysterious beast. There's not a lot that they know for sure about gamma ray bursts. There's a whole lot of discussion and debate about what's really going on uh, with these things. So we'll, uh, we'll keep track of this stuff, and we'll ask Dr. Paul about it when he comes on the air in a couple weeks. But Kent has been pretty, uh, uh, pretty, pretty serious about following this stuff over the last... Uh, the last couple of years, and th- there does uh, seem to be some rough correlation between gamma ray bursts uh, and activity on our star, on the sun, and then, of course, correspondingly, activity on the Earth. Now, speaking of that, there's all kinds of volcanic activity happening right now, and earthquake activity in Alaska, not far from Anchorage, Alaska, there is a uh, a volcano that's called Augustine. It's called the Augustine Volcano. And there uh, have been five explosions there uh, on the island peak that have sent gigantic ash clouds uh, over 10 miles above sea level. Uh, that was on Friday and Saturday. There have been more explosions since then. Uh, and it is part of an eruptive period that supposedly, what the scientists are saying, could last for months. And these are the sort of things that actually have... Talk about global climatic events, you know. I mean, the output of gas from one of these volcanoes completely dwarfs the output of, like, carbon dioxide. People are worried about carbon emissions and carbon dioxide emissions from man-made sources. And, yeah, certainly, you know, we're adding to what's happening in the atmosphere we always have in, in, in some way, shape, or form. You know, animals do that. And over the last hundred years since the Industrial Revolution, we've added all, a whole bunch of stuff that we probably uh, probably wasn't in our best interest to add to the atmosphere, but it's done. Uh, and who knows what the result of it will be. We're just in the middle of some gigantic, uncontrolled experiment. I mean, these volcanoes are throwing stuff into the atmosphere that uh, who knows what the effect of this stuff is. So the simplification that, you know, it's global warming, it's caused by CO2, and we just need to stop driving cars and everything will be okay, or that sort of an attitude is just more silliness. The bottom line is that we are in the midst of a tremendously uh, complicated system, and nobody knows what the effects of anything will be. I mean, it's, it's just as possible that... Uh, that, a, that a, a drastic reduction in carbon dioxide emissions from humans may have some catastrophic effect. Who knows? I mean, we just have no way of knowing. 
And uh, scientists get off on modeling. They talk about modeling. Everything modeling, modeling, modeling. They have all their models in their computers. And the whole idea is control. They're trying to figure everything out. Bottom line is, as we talk about all the time, the butterfly effect is real. Small, little, bitty things can have huge effect. They're unpredictable. They're improbable. And they cannot be discovered in any way that at least human beings have come up with so far. So just face it. The world is changing. It's going to continue to. That's the only thing it's ever done. It just seems to be doing it very quickly now. <laughs> so anyway... It's an amazing ride that we're on these days, that's for sure. But anyway, all kinds of things happening. Volcanoes and earthquakes and, oh my gosh, it's just, uh, you know, wrath of God stuff. But there's also amazing, beautiful stuff happening at the same time. All right, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and this is also the Wimshurst Machine. This song is called Wind Sailor, and we'll be back in just a few minutes.
All right, that's Wind Sailor from the Wimshurst Machine. One more time, you can find out information about the Wimshurst Machine over on the website at MikeHagan.com. Just click over on the Music tab, and you can check them out and download a song. We'll be featuring them for the rest of the program tonight. Got some wonderful stuff from them. Love the stuff that uh, uh, Larry is finding uh, with regard to independent music, which we've been doing now for about six or seven weeks. And pretty successfully, I might add, and I'm really looking forward to doing more of it. Uh, it's sort of a uh, sort of an imperative, actually, a legal imperative, as it were, with regard to what's happening on the web and uh, copyright law and lots of interesting things that are happening with regard to podcasting and webcasting and broadcasting and rebroadcasting over the web and this sort of thing. But the bottom line is, if we have independent music and we have the permission of the artist to play it and rebroadcast it, uh, then we're, we're clear. So we're not playing any more commercial music. We will let the dinosaurs die with their own bones. And we're going to play independent music, and we're going to find it wherever we can find it. Tonight the music comes from Italy, and it's an amazing find. I mean, these guys are outrageous how great they are. So uh, at least it's, you know, obviously music is, a, uh, is art, a subjective thing. Uh, but certainly they're talented musicians, and, and, and to my ear, I really appreciate it. So anyway, Larry's been tracking some of these guys down and girls down. We've got lots of more uh, music to come in the few weeks and months ahead that hopefully you guys enjoy. But this is sort of the new format, and I'd appreciate any input uh, that people have or feedback, I guess I should say, with regard to uh, to this new uh, new sort of format rather than playing a whole bunch of different artists during the program. We're going to uh, sort of feature one particular band or one particular artist and weave the music of that band throughout the entire program. And it's worked pretty well. And tonight, I already like the way it's working. And it's going to be great with the stuff that we're going to be talking about with Jay Widener in just a few minutes, as a matter of fact. So we'll have more music from the Wimshurst Machine throughout the rest of the program. And as I said, go on the web and you can get uh, some more information and download a song or two from them as well. And uh, speaking of the web, you can also get on the web and go over to Jay Widener's site as well and get familiar with some of the stuff that we'll be talking about perhaps tonight. And that is at Jay Widener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And you can get there directly from my front page as well. Okay. All right. A couple quick things in the news. Uh, what is there that's worth talking about? Oh, 15 technological concepts you'll need to know in 2006. I don't want to go through all 15 of them, but there's some interesting stuff there. You can find that on the news page uh, on the website. Uh, new doubts are cast on Einstein's cosmological constant. What an interesting story the cosmological constant is. It's something that Einstein proposed back in the early 20th century, and and then actually de- decided himself that he was wrong about it. Well, in 1998, uh, a bunch of scientists determined that he was actually right about it, and that there was this sort of uh, energy that was somehow pushing the universe apart, and this is what uh, Einstein would have called uh, you know, the cosmological constant, although he didn't even believe that he was right when he, when he talked about it. Now there's another group of scientists that are saying that, that no, that the cosmological constant doesn't exist. It's not constant. 
It's not constant at all, they say. And uh, anyway, of course, there's much debate and disagreement among the hierarchy of science, but it's just another example that points out the crisis in science in general, but certainly in astrophysics and physics. I mean, as Dr. David Gross pointed out, that Solvay, and I love to quote that, you know, uh, he said, we have no idea what's going on. You know, this is the Nobel laureate, Dr. David Gross. So uh, physicists are still struggling um, to come to grips with the things that the instruments of science are revealing to them. And they must sort of bow uh, to the universe and uh, accept the fact that uh, that they still really have not a clue as to what's really going on out there. Anyway, uh, what else? Doomsday Vault to avert world famine. Within a large concrete room hewn out of a mountain on a freezing cold island just a thousand kilometers from the North Pole could lie the future of humanity. The room is a doomsday vault designed to hold around two million seeds representing all known varieties of the world's crops. It is being built to safeguard the world's food supply against nuclear war, climate change, terrorism, rising sea levels, etc., etc. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's the answer. You just build a house up in the North Pole that holds all the seeds, and that'll solve all the problems, I guess. Okay. Uh, Taiwan breeds green glowing pigs. Here's one for the psychedelic file. Scientists in Taiwan say they have bred three pigs that glow in the dark. They claim that while other researchers have bred partly fluorescent pigs, theirs are the only pigs in the world which are fully fluorescent, green through and through. The pigs are transgenic, created by adding genetic material from jellyfish to a normal pig embryo. They are the only ones that are green from the inside out. Even their heart and internal organs are green, the researchers say. The scientists will use the transgenic pigs to study human disease. Because the pig's genetic material encodes a protein that shows up as green, it is easy to spot. Hmm. There you go. Now we got green glowing pigs walking around. I'm telling you, things are getting stranger and stranger. And I absolutely love it. Alright, here's one more story. Then we'll play another piece of music from the Wimshurst machine and then we'll go live with Jay Widener uh, at the top of the hour. Couldn't find a whole lot about alchemy in the news. But I did find an interesting story about Lawrence Fishburne, the guy who played... Um, Morpheus in the movie The Matrix he's uh, involved in a movie that's called The Alchemist and this story came out a couple weeks ago but check this out noted thespian Lawrence Fishburne is moving ahead with plans to write direct and star in an adaptation of Paolo Coelho's novel The Alchemist Fishburne first announced plans to make the film back in 2003 but it looks like it's going forward in 2006 the Alchemist is an adventurous fable by best-selling Brazilian author Paulo, uh, uh, Paulo Coelho about a Spanish boy who leaves his homeland on a trek for Egypt, intent on finding a hidden treasure within the pyramids, a philosophical fable about achieving one's dreams. The story brings the boy into contact with intriguing characters, including an alchemist who becomes his mentor. 
So Lawrence Fishburne doing another interesting role. That's one that I don't see a whole lot of movies, and I'm not too into the Hollywood scene these days, but uh, that's one I might check out. All right, it is 11.55, and it's also uh, the anniversary of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, and I don't want uh, to let that go unrecognized, so I'm going to read a quick piece here, a quote from Dr. King uh, from 1967, November 5th, and it's just something that struck me that I found today, so I'll read it to you here, then we'll play a little music and we'll come back live with Jay Widener. All right, yeah, this uh, from Martin Luther King Jr., an amazing revolutionary whose birth uh, we are celebrating today. I say to you this morning that if you have never found something so dear and so precious to you that you will die for it, then you aren't fit to live. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be, and one day some great opportunity stands before you and calls upon you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job or you're afraid that you will be criticized or that you will lose your popularity or you're afraid that somebody will stab you or shoot you or bomb your house. So you refuse to take the stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you are just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. You died when you refused to stand up for right. You died when you refused to stand up for truth. You died when you refused to stand up for justice. And that's Martin Luther King. Uh, the sermon at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, Atlanta, Georgia, November 5, 1967. Another story that we probably don't know all of. Many questions about the death of uh, Dr. King. But if I could add one thing, my thoughts as I was thinking about this today with regard to where we are, you know, as a country and all that sort of thing, I don't like to talk about politics much. And this really isn't political. I think it's more of a human rights thing. But I just say that, you know, no, no Congress, no kingship, no no parliament, no government, democratic or otherwise, has ever bestowed upon the people more liberties and freedoms and rights than the people themselves have demanded. It's as simple as that. It's never happened. So, yeah, you've got to agree with the good Dr. Martin Luther King here that uh, you've got to stand up for whatever it is you know that you're into. You've got to stand up because uh, it's not being handed out, even though that's the line. Even though that's the line. So, now is as good a time as any. All right, back in just a few minutes with Jay Widener. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And this is also the Wimshurst Machine. The song is called The Alchemist, The Philosopher's Stone. Thank you. 
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. This is Mike, and this is Radio Orbit, and you are listening to it right now. It's just a couple of minutes after midnight on the morning of uh, the 17th of January, Monday uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning now. My guest tonight is Jay Widener. He's an author. He's a filmmaker. He's an hermetic scholar. He's been on the program before, and the show that Jay and I did back in August of last year has been one of the most frequently downloaded programs uh, that I have on the web. Actually, many, many people have listened to that program. I've had lots of comments about it, and I'm really pleased to have uh, to have him back on the show uh, tonight. He is uh, an amazing researcher. I've had a lot of respect for him for a long time. He has uh, deep roots in a lot of the stuff that we like to talk about on the program here, so I'm really pleased to have Jay back on the program. So let's get right to him. Welcome, Jay Widener. Nice to have you back. Hey, it's great to be back, Mike. All right. How are things going? Going great. Lots of incredible things going on in a world that seems to be rapidly moving towards some kind of concrescence. Boy, isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Now, the last time you and I spoke was close to six months ago, not quite, but a, but a, you know, five or six months ago, and you were in Seattle at the time. Have you? Uh, are you still in the same uh, situation? Yeah, I've since uh, moved over to a, a nice little town over on the Olympic Peninsula called Port Townsend. I live out in the woods with a nice view of the ocean, and uh, it's a great place for me to do my work and uh, and live in a little more peaceful situation than I was in Seattle, although I love Seattle. All right, it's a great. great. Town. I'm not that far away, only about an hour. Yeah, it sounds really nice. Yeah, I really like it. All right, well, good. Well, look, we didn't uh, we didn't plan a whole lot about uh, how we were going to... Uh, how we're going to handle the program tonight. So why don't we do a quick uh, background of uh, of you, just for people who are who are new to your work or whatever. Give them the standard uh, uh, biography thing, and then, uh, and then then we'll get into some other stuff. All right. Well, let's see. Uh, let's see. About uh, about almost 20 years ago now, um, I bought a book at a garage sale called Mystery of the Cathedrals by a author with the strange name of Fulcanelli, and I read this book and studied it over the years and began to unveil its many secrets. Uh, secrets were quite astounding. Fulcanelli was telling me and the readers of his incredible book that the secret of alchemy was embedded and engraved in the art and architecture of Gothic cathedrals. Gothic cathedrals were built from about 1150 to about 1250, 1300 in Europe, they were stopped by the Black Plague of the mid-14th century, which mm-hmm. put an end to most of the building and, in fact, pretty much put an end to the entire Middle Ages and, in fact, gave birth to the Renaissance. Uh, what Falconelli was saying was that when the Black Plague hit, it, it wiped out a lot of ancient secrets that our ancestors knew. And most people don't realize that the Black Plague wiped out about over a third of everyone in Europe. And, uh, in fact, there was no one alive in Ireland or 
uh, the south of France, uh, most of England was wiped out. It was a really incredibly terrible disease that swept through Europe. And uh, a lot of secrets got lost. A lot of ancient secrets got lost. And Fulcanelli was kind of the message in the bottle. He was trying to recover these lost secrets for us. Hmm. And he implies in the book that he may possibly even be a very old man, old by our standards anyway, 200, maybe even 300 years old. And I found a lot of this hard to believe at the time. I was a journalist um, writing for uh, several newspapers, and uh, I did not believe it. And I actually set out to prove it wrong because the book was so erudite, so articulate, and so thoughtful that I thought it must be a hoax. And as I studied it and became more and more engrossed in the entire milieu of of alchemy, I guess you would say, I began to realize that not only was what he was saying was true, but it was almost truer than anything else I'd ever encountered. Mm-hmm. And the book itself changed me, as it's changed quite a few other people who have, who have read it. I'm slowly meeting each one of them as they get in contact with me, and I'm finding that the book had a tremendous impact. Um, it began the uh, New Age, in a way, because uh, Bergier and uh, Powell's wrote extensively about it in the book that a lot of people think initiated the New Age in 1960, uh, Morning of the Magician. Right, right. We've talked about that. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of other things that were influenced either directly or indirectly by Fulcanelli including um, surrealism, the painting style that was alchemical in nature Mm. that emerged out of Paris after the book was published. The interesting thing about all this, besides the fact that it's revealing some of the most incredible secrets of all, is that a new chapter had been added to the book when it was reprinted in 1957 and then translated into English and reprinted in England uh, by Neville Spearman in 1959. And that chapter was called the cyclic cross of Hende. Hmm. And that really became the the locus of my of my work, uh the Hende uh uh cross and all of the things that went with it. And as I investigated and uncovered the secrets behind the Hende cross, I realized that in fact the Hende cross was like a series of zip files. <laughs> and every time I opened one up, tremendous amount of information that seemed unrelated almost uh, poured through and as it poured through from each zip file that I opened on each symbol on the cross of Hende I began slowly uncovering um, not only the secret of our ancestors view of the world which is profoundly different than our scientific point of view today but I also found out about hyperdimensional physics and the secret of time and how time unfolds. And um, not bragging, I'm just saying that you know I, I, this is what I spent my life doing, and and whatever meager uh, results have occurred, I believe are profound enough for me to try to tell as many people as possible, so that they can they understanding this knowledge makes one more comfortable in this world. Hmm. That's really what I'm trying to tell people is that everything is actually all right. Yeah. We're not we're not really we are heading maybe towards a disaster of some kind, 
but that disaster is not as disastrous as we've been led to believe. Hmm. And I think that's really the message that ultimately Falconelli is trying to emote and one that I'm also trying to emote uh, in my work. And so that's basically what I've spent the last few years doing. Um, if you're interested in you know this further, then you need to get the book that I co-wrote, Mysteries of the Great Cross of Henday, or go to my website at jwidener.com. Yeah, okay, and I was just going to mention that uh, a lot of this is spelled out and explained and, and uh, expounded upon in The Mysteries of the Great Cross, uh, Great Cross of Henday, Alchemy, and the End of Time. Those are both co- uh, co-authored with yourself and, and Vincent Bridges. Yes, and also my video documentary, Secrets, Secrets of, Alchemy. of Alchemy. Yeah, which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, The Great Cross at the End of Time. That really seems to be the the work that I've done that's, that's hit hit home with most people. So I think the best thing I can suggest, if you're really interested in this, is to watch the uh, documentary Secrets of Alchemy, and then if you're really turned on by it, then to go read the book. I think the two together really work well. Yeah, I read uh, Monument to the End of Time years ago, which was sort of the first yeah. Uh, the first release of what eventually became Mysteries of the Great Co- uh, Great Cross at Henday, I yeah. think, and and then I saw your video afterwards and then read the book again and I got uh, I don't know if it was the combination or the or, or whatever but I certainly uh, really seemed to to hold a lot more from it the second time I read it. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Uh, a lot of uh, people have emailed me and said that, and um, I you know I, I'm glad because I think that. I think that film and video are really the uh, the new alchemy of our time. Hmm. There you go. They're not used properly by Hollywood, unfortunately, because the black magicians of Hollywood don't really want to use film in a way that it should be used. Hmm. But I think that's changing. I think uh, the younger generation has tools that you know that were never have never been present before and they're much more they're much more cheap than they used to be and i think there a revolution is really going on in 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 film and in music that i don't think we really have begun to appreciate yet i don't mm-hmm. think we're about to appreciate it for maybe maybe 10 or 12 more years it's going to be like the 60s mm-hmm. where we we really didn't realize how great the 60s were until they were long gone and mm-hmm. i think that's what's going to happen today like the music you're playing tonight's show i mean i think I think the fact that this kind of stuff is coming out right now and on independent labels is right. it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, these guys, uh, we've been digging up some people that are every bit as good. Uh, in fact, in, m- in most cases, better than most of the crap that comes out of the out of the commercial uh, coffers these days, quite honestly. But oh, yeah, I agree. And and the thing is is that these people are... The, the accountants have taken over all of the music companies and all the film companies... And really and truly, you know, I love accountants. I have an accountant. He's a great guy. But you don't want them choosing your music or your movies. I mean, come on, folks. So uh, a new revolution is taking place, and uh, the decentralization of art and music and film is taking place right before our eyes. And I have every intention of being at the uh, cutting edge of that new movement. Well, I am with you fully. I want to ride right next to you. You know, you you, uh, you mentioned this this new technology and the revolution that's sort of in the works. You know, there's one I see one limiting one limiting thing, and it's yet to be resolved. But it's going to be resolved, and it will be quick, and it's bandwidth. You know. Yes. And once that happens, I mean, full multimedia 
becomes available pretty much everywhere, and then the things you're talking about, uh, art lives everywhere, you know. Uh, I agree, and what's great about this whole revolution that's going on is it's not going to be um, decided by how much money your uh, rich uncle has. Hmm. It's going to be decided by your talent, hmm. and that is what I love about it. It's just so incredible that no longer will it just be who you know. It'll actually be what you know. And it'll be chosen, and people will become popular, and their works will become popular, based really on their own intrinsic talent, and mm. not on the fact that they had a relative that worked at the record company or in the film business who got them a job. Yeah, and how and how hard they're willing to work. Yes, and, you know, that's right, uh, and sacrifice. Yeah, and get their get, get their work out there, and get people to uh, to view it or to listen to it or whatever, you know. Yes. So yeah, I agree. I think it's great, and I hope I hope there's I hope there's just more and more of it. I hope you're absolutely right about it, and I think that you are. And I see it uh, I see it in radio as well. You know. Yes, I do. I do too. I mean, uh, there's more freedom now than I've ever seen. And I've been in radio. I had my own radio show also for years. Yeah, I know. I was I restricted and called up in front of the board of directors of the radio station for saying things that are now just commonplace. <laughs> and so that's what's going on is is this uh, age of information that we're in is 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 exploding in all directions and things the ec- the esoteric is now becoming exoteric <laughs> hey, i mean you, you, you've tried to tell someone 20 years ago that you know you're you're going to get on the radio and talk about alchemy <laughs> everyone at the table would have bowled over laughing you know, and thought that maybe you've been taking too many drugs <laughs> but now you know, here we are, and it's uh-huh. it's amazing, and it's astonishing, and I, I'm grateful that I was able to live as long as I have to be able to see this happen, and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, well, you've you, you've been you've had your feet in lots of different waters for sure. You've done uh, work with uh, Paul Laviolette. I know that you produced uh, his program Earth Under Fire, which was actually on television. I'm sure of that. Yep. And uh, Dr. Paul, of course, is a, you know I'm a big fan of his as well. And he's actually going to be on the show in two weeks, two weeks oh, from tonight. He's great. He's yeah. One of my very, very favorite people. And a true empiricist, a true scientist. You know, that's what, what I love about Paul is that he won't say something unless he's sure it's yeah. true. Yeah. And that, I just, I just love that. I just love that integrity. Yeah, he's as careful with his words as anyone I've ever spoken to. I agree. No and question. Believe me, he and I have batted heads. <laughs> I bet. I've tried to get him to believe something and... And eventually he comes around, but not without making me work my uh, tail off to try to prove it to him. Right? Yeah, he needs to see so the I numbers. To dig up information, get it to Paul, and finally Paul will say, "Well, maybe you're right." Yeah, well, he's doing. He, he he's been sort of on a parallel track with you and doing just astonishing work. And you've done work with uh, with Alex Gray. The yep. uh, the uh, the piece that you produced with Alex Gray called Art Mind is just great. I, I love that. Piece. I mean, that is the coolest thing. One of the one of the best uh, video slash I don't know interview documentary uh, art pieces I've ever seen. I mean, it's just great. I, I really like it too. I think um, you know that I had a funny incident with that um, documentary. Alex lives in in Brooklyn, right above one of the busiest streets in the entire United States, <laughs> and his studio is incredible. And he invited us up to uh, shoot there at the studio, which I was very grateful. No doubt. And we got there. It was about 3 in the afternoon, and there was so much traffic noise out in the street that I knew that I couldn't do the film there. Hmm. And I didn't know how to tell Alex. 
So, you know, I made up something about let's go outside and shoot you walking on the sidewalk. We, you know, I just trying to figure out what I was going to do. So we went out and we shot and we shot and we got back around, uh, it was about mm, 10 to 5 now in the afternoon. Right. And uh, he's saying, okay, well, when are we going to begin, you know? And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to tell him? <laughs> uh, there's so many horns going and sirens and there's no way I'll get a decent soundtrack. Right. But I proceeded to just go ahead and, and shoot it anyway because I didn't really know what to do. And uh, I set the lights up, and I was getting ready with the crew and everything. And then 5 o'clock came, and all of a sudden, all the traffic stopped. All the noise stopped. Huh. And I said, what happened? He says, I, I don't know. That's that's never happened. I've been here for 12 years, and uh, I've never heard it so quiet. Oh, my God. And so we walked outside, and the some men had blocked off the road on both sides of the street, all the way down the street on both sides, blocked all the traffic off, and they were tearing up the street in the next day. And so for the first time in 12 years, he had a quiet night in Brooklyn. Is that something? It just huh? happened to be the night that we shot that film. Oh, my God. It's like, you know, when you said that you you were up in his studio, I have this image of, like, going into the alchemist's cave, the alchemist's laboratory, you know, I mean, that's the way I feel about him, he's like a, an amazing magician of some sort, you know? I think Alex Gray actually is the the greatest alchemist artist of our age, and I think he's, I think he's beyond Picasso, I think he's beyond Salvador Dali, I think he is, in my view, the greatest artist of the late 20th century, early 21st century, and uh, I would really, you know, I welcome anyone who wants to argue with me on that. Write to me at my email and at my thing, and I'll argue with you because I'm sure of it. And I'm sure that if we're alive, this civilization is still going 100, 200, 300 years from now. It'll be Alex Gray's paintings that'll be shown. Yeah, I think he will be recognized, uh, as you say, if we can make it through the gate. He will be recognized as one of the one of the all-time greats, no question about it. He, yep. his, his work is just absolutely transforming for anybody who looks at it and it's not right always, it's not always the same reaction i mean some people are absolutely creeped out oh yeah uh you know and it's art you know what i mean it has it's ambiguous it has a different effect everywhere but my gosh it is stunning stunning work i'll tell you working with those images for six months editing God, i can't imagine it, it transformed me i i was um you know I, I fell in love with every image and i began to understand it and have to look at it in such detail that it was transforming my own consciousness as I was working with it. And uh, I owe Alex you know, so much for uh, for his effort and work. And he hasn't really received the recognition that I think he deserves. Mm. Well, you know, n none of the real great ones do, unfortunately, it seems like. But, uh, I'm afraid you're right. Anyway, uh, he is something else for sure. And it's great that you've, done, you, you've, you've worked with some amazing people and, and, of course, done this great stuff yourself. So... Anyway, so what's the latest? You're, uh, you've got a new documentary yourself out. or I don't know if it's released yet, but I know you're real close. Yeah, we're about uh, three months away from uh, a film that we're going to be releasing as a feature um, called 2012 The Odyssey. And it's a journey, an adventure journey into 2012, the Mayan calendar, the cross of Hende, hmm. um, the uh, the stone monument at Elberton, Georgia. Ah, the Over guide one. stones, the Georgia guide stones. Yeah, the Georgia guide stones are going to be featured heavily. Ah, interesting. Uh, yeah, we're going all over the world uh, shooting this uh, documentary, and uh, it's going to be whimsical, a lot of fun, very mystical, and 
It's uh, the first, I think, my first real attempt to create a trans transmutative work uh, in, in a feature kind of way, and uh, I, I think it's. I know it's going to be really, really good. It's going to be a visual feast and a musical feast, and uh, a lot of great people are in it. Gene Houston, Greg Braden, John Major Jenkins, mm. uh, a lot more than that. Uh, Inca elders are coming down from the Andes to talk about 2012 yes. and the emergence of Homo luminous, which they claim is a new species that's really? emerging. Uh, just you know, it's so filled with incredible information that it's just I think it's going to be a very exciting project for people and they're going to like it. All right, look, we'll look forward to it for sure. We'll have to uh, once you release it, we'll, we'll we'll get together again, have you back in the program. We can talk I'll more about it. I'll send you a copy it. right away. Yeah, all right, cool. <laughs> and we'll and we, we've got an hour and a half, so I'll drag some more information out of you too between now and then. So all right, sounds good. I love to talk about it. All right, so uh, all right, so that's the latest, huh? Yeah, well, there's a lot going on, you know. Um, what can I say? There's uh, so much going on now that uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, one time, uh, oh I remember reading a, a quote from, I think it was uh, President Eisenhower. He said, huh. there's more going on now than there ever has been before. <laughs> and uh, that's really how I feel about what's going on right now. Um, there's so many seminal things that are happening on so many fronts, and so many people are putting together so many of the puzzles that have uh, bedeviled us for so long that you know I think it's amazing I think it's amazing that we're talking you know on the uh, on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's birth we're also talking on January 17th which which is uh, considered a really important day to a mysterious group of alchemists in France called the Priory de Sion. Yeah, the Priory de Sion. And uh, they they worshiped January 17th which is always been a mystery, I guess, to most people um, who have been interested in in um, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. And I think, I think this is probably the first time that it's ever been announced, but I've been doing work uh, <clears throat> on, on January 17th on trying to figure out why it was such an important day. Yeah. And what I found is, is that the center of the galaxy was rising with the morning sun on January 17th in uh, 66 A.D., which is the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem. Right. And this is why January 17th is such a big day to the Priory of Sion. Very it, is the, it is marking the time, the last time, you know, that the, when the temple went down, that the galaxy and the, and the Solstice, or not the solstice, but the winter sun was rising, Capricorn. And uh, so time has been marching slowly backwards, as it does in the procession of the equinoxes. And on December 21st, 2012, it will finally rise um, helically uh, with the solstice sun in the morning, uh, according to the Mayan calendar and according to, you know, software, astronomical software. So... Uh, we, we now know that the Priory of Sion is also watching the center of the galaxy and when it rises with the morning sun. And I think it's very important to know that you know this group of alchemists is also right on track with the work that John Major Jenkins is doing and that, that I'm doing and a lot of other people are doing. And this is a group that, uh, just for clarification, the Priory of Sion, they're... This is a group that's still active, in your opinion. 
I, I absolutely believe that they're active. Uh, everything the prior DCON wants, the prior DCON gets. You know, <laughs> they wanted to have a united Europe, and they're getting it. And uh, they're um, they're an amazing group of people. And uh, a lot of people think it's a hoax and all this, but I absolutely do not believe it's a hoax in any way, shape, or form. Um, the reason that I don't think it's a hoax is beyond the fact that they're marking the center of the galaxy. <laughs> is that they use um, hyperdimensional numbers in their um, in their ontology, and this runs all the way back to King Rene Anjou uh, back in the uh, 1400s. Uh, so either you know um, King Rene and the prior Dion uh, just m- invented these numbers by a coincidence, or in fact. They knew about hyperdimensional physics 600 years before it was discovered by physicists in the 20th century. And um, it's beyond coincidence. I know they know it because that is the secret of alchemy, which is the topological manifold of higher dimensions or hyperdimensions. And this is how you manifest what is euphemistically called lead into gold or... um, Spirit, matter into spirit, right. that kind of a thing. And, and we are on the verge. We are now less than seven years away from the great alchemical experiment of history. And history, all of history, is the precursor to this uh, period of time that we're just entering in and have only been in now for a little over, not quite four weeks. So it's... Uh, this is it. This is the final seven years of the great experiment, and I think everybody better hang on because it's going to get really wild. <laughs> Amazing. All right, well, we're going to have them hang on for a minute as well. It's a good chance to take a break here. Uh, my guest is Jay Widener, and uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with Jay and uh, talk more about alchemy and Falconelli and the Galactic Center and what all this business of the alignment on the solstice and all this stuff is about. We'll come back and we'll talk with Jay a little bit more about this because I have a particular question that he just brought up in my own mind, actually. But amazing stuff, and uh, Jay Widener has been involved in it for quite a while. He's on the leading edge of this stuff, so uh, take heart to what you're listening to tonight. Check it out, and if you like it, uh, go find more about Jay at www.jaywidener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R. Dot com, and you can get there uh, from uh, my homepage and also from many of my links uh, pages. Jay's uh, uh, over on the links page as well. And you can also get to our previous program that we did uh, back in 2005. And you can download or listen to that, etc., etc. Okay, we'll be back with Jay in just a few minutes. And in the meantime, let's play another piece of music here by the Wimshurst Machine. And again, you can find out information about this amazing band from Italy. Uh, on the website as well. Just click on the music section when you go over to MikeHagan.com. All right? All right, this is called Ghosts of Fallow Ground, and it's great stuff. Check it out. Back in just a few minutes with Jay Widener. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit.
Ghosts of Fallow Grounds. That's the Wimshurst machine. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, so it's about 12.35, and we've got Jay Widener on the phone, talking to us live from Washington State up in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, Jay, thanks for sticking around. No problem. Hey, uh, before the break, you said something that sort of struck me. You mentioned this date, uh, December 21st, 2012, that everybody's talking about and has been for, uh, there's been a buzz about it for quite a while, but now the buzz is getting louder. And one of the ideas is that this date uh, coincides with a particular alignment that happens in the stars and in the heavens. And you mentioned that, yeah, now we have this computer software that can literally uh, look ahead or backwards in time, basically, and then configure the stars and the, the, the situation in the stars above our heads basically at any time. And this actually confirms that this situation is going to happen. Uh, well, absolutely. In fact, that software, which was invented about 20 years ago and perfected about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, really is what opened up the uh, secrets of the ancient to uh, various researchers. And it's, uh, it, it allowed what used to take um, like months to figure out. Mm. Uh, they used to have a thing like Nostradamus had a device called an armillary sphere, which was a, a sphere that you've probably seen in, in astrological magazines and things. And it allows, it's a very crude approximation of where the stars and everything are in relationship to the Earth. And it takes a long time, a lot of paper, and a lot of calculation to figure out just about anything, even where the sun will be tomorrow. But with this software, like Voyager and Astrolab and all these various different softwares that have, have come out, suddenly I can type in a date like... January 17th, 66 A.D., mm. and I can see Amazing. the center of the galaxy rising with the morning sun. And now I, you know, and I know then that someone is watching this particular alignment. And this is how Jenkins, Jen, John Major Jenkins, right. had deciphered the Mayan calendar and realized that its end date was December 21st, 2012. But he didn't understand what it meant and why they would pick this date. It just seemed arbitrary, except that it was on a solstice. Right. But he got himself some Voyager software, and he sat down with it, and he typed in the date, and there it was. You know, the center of the galaxy was rising with the morning sun. And this unveils um, the very center of mythological truth. For then we begin understanding that the center of the galaxy is really Isis. Mm. The legends of Isis said that she was the goddess who created everything, including our own sun, and that she was hidden by a veil, and that no one could see her, not really. And if you look up at the sky between the, the constellations of Scorpio and Sagittarius on a nice summer night, mm. um, and uh, uh, you know, around uh, 1 in the morning, uh, especially down in the Midwest and in the South, where you can see it a lot better than up here in the North, right. uh, you can see this kind of vulva-shaped white oh. cloud, and that is the center of the galaxy, but that's all you can see. You really don't know what it is. Right, right. And so the Mayans knew 
that it was the center of the galaxy. The Egyptians knew that this was the mother of all creation. And the reason that you can't see it because there's a veil of dust, 26,000 light years of dust between us and the center of the galaxy. And this is the veil. This is Isis's veil that hides her face from us. And she is the creator of our local cosmic neighborhood. And so the secrets, because of this software, the secrets of the ancients are beginning to be unveiled. And though, excuse the pun. And those uh, secrets are dealing with astronomy and astronomical alignment. And this has to do, again, with hyperdimensional physics and the way that the universe um, unfolds. The universe is like a program, mm. like a, a computer program in a way. And there's an alpha, and there's an omega, and there's a beginning, and there's an end. Right, right. And prophets are those who, and, and, and mystics, are those who notice the quirks in the program. The coincidences is what we call them, right. synchronicities. synchronicities. And these are quirks in, in this great cosmic program. And People who we might say have a high IQ or a high mystical IQ are those who recognize that this is really a program hmm. and that they begin predicting what the next step in the program is. So the person who built the cross of Hende or Nostradamus or Mother Shipton or all of these great so-called prophets and prophetic devices are really ways for us to crack program that we're caught in and and, and 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 it's really quite amazing because once you realize that this really is a program to speak of and I don't say that it's a mechanistic program like a computer program but I'm just using that as a metaphor right. it, it you begin to realize that this world has a consciousness behind it this universe has a consciousness which is driving it and when you realize that, then a great deal of comfort uh, can come over you because you realize that everything actually is okay yeah. and everything is being driven towards an omega. And that omega point, the end of the program, is at 11.11 in the afternoon or in the morning of December 21st, 2012, when the sun and the center of the galaxy marry each other in the heavens. This is the wedding of Isis and... Uh, Ra or uh, Horus, yeah. and they marry, and they marry, and the Earth is it's a, it's a once in a twenty six thousand year in um, alignment, and the next time that that happens on the solstice won't be for another twenty six thousand years. Huh, Interestingly enough, twenty six thousand years ago was the rise of Cro-Magnon man, our forefathers, hmm. and uh, there seems to have been a gigantic species leap, a leap in mm. our species, in the size of the cranium, in the size of the brain, in the ability to speak, uh, language and linguistic ability arose at this point. So there does seem to be a relationship between the way that these things happen in the sky and what happens to us down here on the, mm. on the surface of the earth. Yeah, and it's, you know, again, that's written in all the literature, too. The whole as above, so below idea that we've talked about before. I mean, it's written everywhere. Yes, it is. And it, it is, it is uh, as Terrence McKenna used to say, it's more true now than it ever has been. <laughs> and, you yeah, know, it's really, yeah. it's a funny statement, but, yeah. it, it, you know, it's got that 
strange contradiction in it that makes it real and true. And I think that's really what's going on. And um, I think that you're, you, us, everyone around, everyone that's listening, everything is going to come, everything is going to be unleashed. All the knowledge, everything is going to suddenly come to a head now in these next seven years. We're going to know about life extension, and we're going to know about intelligences inside our solar system, outside the uh, galaxy, mm-hmm. and we're going to know about the secret of our history, and everything, to those that are willing to listen, that is, right. is going to be unveiled. It actually is almost unveiled. It's just that there's not not more than 1% or 2% of the people who are really concerned with these things, but fortunately... Those are the only; those are the one or two percent that actually count for anything. Interesting. Yeah, and so that's where the revolution comes from, and it's not really a violent revolution of some kind of socialist or thing. It's a it's a it's a revolution of of, of the spirit, a revolution of the heart, and it's you know, being uh, concretized in our art and in our radio shows and in our music, and it's coming out now at this very moment, and it's really the alchemy at the end of time and it has to do with so many things that are going on around us uh, movies and and art that uh, it's it's really astonishing yeah and and even the opposite side the ugly <laughs> stuff the war the, the the destruction all that stuff plays into it as well yes it does and it makes us see our dark side and 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 nine, i like to say you know 911 for those of huh. us who are uh, perceptive enough to know what really happened on 911, and I don't want to get into it much more than that. Uh, we it, it opens up as you know Joseph Conrad called the heart of darkness, right. and the heart of darkness isn't open to make us depressed or to make us pessimistic about the future. You, if you don't know about the things that secretly trouble you, then you're never going to tackle those problems and solve them. And so now I think it's just wide open. We know what's going on. Mm, yeah. There's no one, except for those that don't count, who is fooled by what's going on anymore. And so the heart of darkness is open, and frankly, the only way you can get to light is through the dark. Mm-hmm. And that's why these things are all occurring right now. So there's no doubt in anyone's mind about what is really happening. And then we can bypass those dark corners of the spirit and, and, and get them behind us because that's really what we need to do right now. Uh, it's, it's you know, fine and dandy to dwell on the darkness that's all around us, but only for a while. And after that, it's time to move forward into the light, and that's what we really need to do now. Well, l- let me ask you, I've got a whole bunch of notes that I've just been making. I've got all kinds of things that, we'll t- that I want to ask you, but... Uh, right off of what you just said there, there there's also an alchemical uh, relationship with this dark and, and light, heart of darkness sort of idea. In other words, yes. there's the concept of the negredo yes. and the albedo. Maybe you could talk about that for a minute. Yeah, and I think that's a, you know, it's a great segue because that's exactly what I meant. The heart of darkness really is the negredo and it's the, the black stuff from which all alchemy comes from and the the alchemist searches and searches for the uh, black matter the black stone that exists 
and everything emotes from this stone. And 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 the trick is to turn that stone into light. Okay. So what is that black stone? Well, that black stone is really the heart of darkness. It's really the psychological terror that lies within the human race. And at the end of the age, all of these things come out. Um, as Robert Graves said, you know, let all the monsters come forth from the mud. Mm. Well, that's really what is going on. You know, it's Martin Luther King Day, and anyone who's familiar with what really happened to Martin Luther King knows that, you know, we've been lied to all this time. And uh, that somebody deep within our our own government probably, you know, ordered his execution. And so we have to start asking ourselves, oh, you know, why did this happen? How did we allow it to happen? And how could we prevent it in the future? And through that process, we are coming to grips with reality and truth, and through that, we can come to grips with what we really are, what we're really doing here, and where we're really going. And so all this stuff that's happened from the 60s onward, which is, you know, phenomenally bizarre in, in every way. And, um, I, you know, I'm a student of all of that, and I study it constantly, and, and but I never let the darkness affect me because I'm looking at it strictly from an alchemical point of view, which is this is the darkness from which the light must be transmuted. And so the philosophical stone is that is that black stone, which interestingly enough is what the monolith is in 2001 Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, It is the stone, the black monolith is the black stone from which our species emerges and from where our species enters at the end of our species, at the end of our age, at the end of the film. And that is the the transmutative substance that changes us from an ape to a human, from a human to a star child or to homo luminous. And that is... Uh, it's a it, it's a difficult concept to grasp, but I, the easiest way that I can say it is that if you were born in a mansion with servants, you would not really ever appreciate what you had. But if you were born in a ghetto, uh, a poor boy struggling to get by, and you ended up in a mansion mm-hmm. with servants, then you would appreciate it. And that's what has to happen. You must go to hell before you go to heaven. And so we are going through our personal, political, spiritual hell now, but it's only one step in a long, involved alchemical process. And it's necessary at the end of history for us to go through it. And that's what we're going through right now. I'm, I'm utterly convinced beyond any shadow of a doubt. With, with regard to that, l- let me ask you a question about... How- about how we might know when it's darkest. In other words, how do you know when you've hit, when you've hit bottom? You know, I mean, part, part of the whole idea of the Negredo Albedo idea is that, well, don't worry, it's probably going to get worse. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, it may. Um, I've been doing a lot of interesting studies. I don't, I don't. I'm not a big TV watcher, and I've kind of missed. 
a lot of these shows I'm about to talk about, but I began watching them on DVD because they're released through Netflix and things, and so I've been getting them and watching them. Right. And I've been watching not just the X-Files, but all of the works by Chris Carter. Hmm. And Chris Carter had a show called The Lone Gunman, which yeah. was only on for six weeks yeah. in April of 2001. Mm-hmm. And the very first episode, I don't know if you people know about this, mm-hmm. but if you don't, you should definitely get this episode mm-hmm. and watch it. The lone gunmen are a group of conspiracy theorists who uncover, crack a Pentagon software program which tells them that someone in our government is going to crash a 757 into the World Trade Center. Now, don't forget, this is April 2001, months before 9-1. Five months, right. Yeah, and, and it the was show is actually... the pilot episode. The pilot episode, and by the way, the best episode of the six. Of course. And Chris Carter wrote that episode. He did not write any of the others. And the, the episode is uncanny because one of the, I guess, the climactic line in the movie is that the lone, one of the lone gunmen is searching the plane for a bomb they believe is on the plane. And finally he realizes and he says, there is no bomb on the plane. The plane is, is the, the bomb. bomb. Oh, and, you man. know, that, you know, it's just like <laughs> jaw drop, right? And, 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 they, and they, they save the situation by cracking the computer that's on the plane, which is forcing the plane to drive by remote control. And uh, the plane averts the World Trade Center and everything is fine. Well, this is all great and dandy until you realize that Chris Carter's last episode of The X-Files has Scully asking Mulder, so what is the great secret? And Mulder turns to her and says that the aliens will be here on the winter solstice of 2012. Hmm. Now, that is also quite incredible until you get to another show by Chris Carter called Millennium. And this show, which is really the most alchemical show ever on television, has two groups that are fighting each other called the Roosters and the Owls. And the roosters want to wake us up, and the owls want to keep us asleep. And the last episode of the second season of Millennium, only lasted three seasons, uh, is a two-parter. It's the last two episodes, and it is absolutely a jaw-dropper. In 1998, May, this episode was released, these two episodes. And these two episodes are about a bird flu, which... (laughs) is released and the elite the millennium group and it has inoculated only the ones that they want to survive this bird flu and everybody on earth dies from this bird flu now this may not seem like much to the audience but in 1998 right. no one had a clue what bird flu was that's the very opening shot of of the uh, two-part episode is a chicken farmer coming into his gigantic chicken farm and finding literally thousands and thousands of chickens dead. Hmm. And I saw this, and I thought, you know, is this guy the most prescient person ever writing? Um, how, you know, he has a direct hit on the lone gunman. Right, right. He has a, what well, I think, a direct hit on the very last episode. Notice that he waits until the last episode right, of X-Files. Right, of X-Files. And then here we have the last episode of the second season, which is really the hmm. best season of Millennium, um, with this entire story of the bird flu and these inoculations. 
And I have to say, I wonder what Chris Carter really knows. And it gets back to your question, you know, when is it darkest? And I don't know if Chris Carter knows something that we don't know. I suspect he does. And I don't know if the bird flu really is going to do anything or if it was just a fluke, another coincidence. Mm. But Strange. Yeah, strange stuff. And uh, my feeling is, is, my own personal feeling is, is that we will be through the darkest period within the, over the next two years, that the, the real true end of the darkness is now coming. And I think, you know, there's going to be some things that aren't going to be very pleasant, but we're going to get through it, and we're going to learn a lot from those unpleasant experiences. You know, you don't make any mistakes. If you don't make any mistakes, hmm. you don't learn anything. No doubt about that. Yeah, so we're making a lot of mistakes. We must be learning an awful lot. <laughs> Let's hope so, Jay. All right, look, uh, it's just a little bit before the top of the hour. Let's take another break, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more, all right? All right, uh, this is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. And my guest is Jay Widener. You can find out more information about Jay and the work that he's doing and has done over quite a few years uh, at jaywidener.com, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. You can also link there directly from my site. And we'll come back and talk with Jay in just a few more minutes, okay? And we will continue with the musical extravaganza that we're bringing to you tonight as well. This is the Wimshurst Machine one more time. And uh, speaking of bird flu, let's play the Celtic Death Ballad. Again, the Wimshurst Machine, and you can find information about them on the website as well at MikeHagan.com. Just click on the Music tab once you get there. All right? Okay, top of the hour. We'll be back in just a few minutes with uh, Jay Widener and continue a very interesting conversation as always. Thanks to Jay for being here, and we'll be back with him in just a few minutes.
Aloha, this is Paradise Newland. And Michael Heisen. And you're listening to Radio Orbit. With Mike Hagan on KOPN. Columbia, Missouri. All right, that's right. It is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And it is uh, straight up 1 o'clock, uh, I guess 1 o'clock in a minute or so. And we're on the line here with my friend Jay Widener talking to us live from uh, Olympia, Washington, or thereabouts. And we've been talking about lots of different things for the last hour, and we're going to stick around and talk with Jay for another hour. Uh, the music that you're listening to tonight comes from a band of musicians from Italy, and they call themselves the Wimshurst's Machine. And uh, it's sort of an interesting name, actually. I might as well mention this really quick. The Wimshurst Machine turns out to be this old machine that was sort of a precursor to uh, the electrical generator in like the 19th century or something. Anyway, it was called the Wimshurst Machine. It was this funky electrical device that nobody knows about. So anyway, that's who they named themselves after. And you can find out more about them uh, on the website at MikeHagan.com. Just click over on the music tab. Same thing for Jay. Just go to my site and click right on the front page there, and you can jump right over to Jay's site. Or just go over to Jay Widener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com, and put that in your bookmarks for sure. I actually have a folder, Jay, that uh, in my bookmarks, and you know, I have all kinds of bookmarks, and I try to manage them. And one of my folders is called The Great Work. <laughs> and inside that folder... I keep all of my stuff that's sort of alchemically related, you know. Yeah, I have the same uh, thing in my uh, favorites. Anyway, hey, listen, while we were uh, uh, while we were off the air, the, the phone was ringing like crazy, and I got people calling, asking questions, and and uh, emails coming in with questions. So, um, let me ask you a couple things, all right? First off, uh, Scorpio and Sagittarius. You mentioned that earlier. Mm-hmm. The significance of Scorpio and Sagittarius. Well, they're the two uh, constellations uh, in the zodiac which border the center of the galaxy. Sagittarius is, of course, an archer, Hmm. and it's shooting its arrow directly into the center of the galaxy, or nearly directly. The tail of the scorpion is pointed also at the center of the galaxy. Going back to what we were talking about earlier at the Priory de Sion, they have a series of 13 poems that they released called the Red Serpent Documents. Hmm. And each poem is dedicated to another sign in the Zodiac. The only problem is there's only 12 signs in the Zodiac, but there's 13 poems. The 13th poem takes place between the poem for Sagittarius and the poem for Scorpio. Hmm. And it's two, It's a, a poem to the center of the galaxy. Now you have to remember, the center of the galaxy wasn't discovered until 1918, so... Uh, the fact that we have these occult groups going back, like the Mayans and the Egyptians, thousands of years that know about this is is just about as jaw-dropping as it can get. So the Sagittarius and Scorpio are the, uh, I guess, like the gatekeepers Hmm. for the center of the galaxy. And uh, they symbolically show us the energy moving in through the arrow of Sagittarius and the energy moving out through the sting of the Scorpion. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, so once you crack the symbol uh, of this, then all the rest becomes quite obvious, including the fact that the constellations were put there to reveal the center of the galaxy. Amazing. Yeah, it really is, actually. It really is astonishing. I mean, it's amazing to me. Okay, another question. Uh, Some astute listener uh, 
recognize the fact that, that you mentioned 11-11, not only on the winter solstice on December 21st, but also the time 11-11. That's been uh, in people who are interested in numerology and uh, synchronicity have been interested in this combination of numbers 11-11 for a long time. There have been lots of people chatting about it. So, Yeah, if you look up the... Um Naval Observatory, which keeps uh, t- track of times, mm-hmm. um, they have the time of the uh, of the of the uh, eclipse of the center of the galaxy and the sun on December twenty first, two thousand twelve. For some reason, they're keeping track of this. <laughs> I guess everybody is, huh? <laughs> yeah, and there it is, eleven eleven. You know, oh my it, God. It, it, and so eleven eleven is this glitch in the program, right? Yeah. So. That's what you have to understand, that, that it's a glitch in the program. It's actually a hyperdimensional number. Hmm. It, um, it has a, it, it, I, I won't go into it here. If someone wants to write to me, I can tell them about how it tangentially fits into the hyperdimensional numeric scheme. But 1111 is one of the glitches in the program. and allows you for a brief moment to realize that you're in something that's bigger than you are and... Uh, and so the reason that the Mayan, I believe, the reason that the Mayans picked December 21st, 2012, is not just because of the eclipse coming on a solstice of the center of the galaxy and the sun, but also because it occurs at exactly 1111. Hmm. Again, um, how would you feel if you were code in a program? You know, <laughs> Would you know that what the rest of the program is doing? Right. And the answer is probably not. But if you can talk to other parts of the program, other pieces of code in the program, you might be able eventually to figure out what the program is. Hmm. That's what's going on right now. Interesting. You know, you think of like, you know, does a liver cell, uh, you know, know what, uh, you know, what a heart cell is doing? Exactly. Et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of the analogy. But if they could set up an Internet or radio shows Mm. and then talk about it Mm -hmm. inside the body, which I actually believe they can, uh, they they would. And this is a hyperdimensional program. So everything that's coming down through us is coming down through hyperdimensional numbers or 19.47 or Mm. um, 27 or... You know, there's there's a whole slew of these numbers that keep appearing and... Um, and, and they also encase themselves, uh, concretize themselves into our art and our science, whether it's the Matrix or, or the movie Contact mm. or all of these things. There's these weird hyperdimensional aspects to these things that probably someone in their 80s or 90s or someone from the 50s or 60s wouldn't even be able to comprehend. Hmm, yeah, we're watching them as, as popcorn entertainment. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's really amazing. All right, uh, let's see. This is a good one because I, this is one you can probably talk about for a while, and uh, we haven't talked about it on the air, at least not not in detail. One of my listeners called and said, first of all, how much he appreciated the uh, the work that you wrote about the Kubrick connection in mm. uh, 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 2001, The Space Odyssey. I forget the exact title. Maybe you could give that to us. Alchemical Kubrick. Alchemical Kubrick, that's correct. Yeah. And that's on the website, of course, over at Jay's site as well. Yeah, I, I have. Uh, um, I was in France uh, when Stanley died in 1999, actually uh, investigating Falconelli. I was in Paris mm-hmm. and uh, um, began, turned on the TV after working all day 
at my hotel and uh, Channel 3, the great French station, uh, uh, no no uh, ads, uh, you know, high uh, resolution picture, not like we have here in right, the U.S. Right. I began showing 2001, mm-hmm. and I watched it. And I didn't know that Stanley had died because the papers, I didn't really hadn't seen the papers that day and hadn't been listening to anything. And I sat and I watched, you know, the movie, and, of course, it was completely odd, as I always have been by it. And over the next few nights, they showed all of the rest of the films. Of course, they found out the next day that Stanley had died. Hmm. Well, I got back home, and about two weeks later, I had an amazing, I guess, a download, a revelation. And uh, for about three hours, I just uncovered in in a flash the entire secret of 2001. And... um, uh, it, it, one of the odd synchronicities of the story is I ran down to the video store that was down the street from me to get it after my revelation because I didn't own it at the time and I wanted to watch it. And I walked into the video store and it was on the uh, TV as I walked into the video store. Amazing. Yeah, and the guy goes, the kid that was uh, had it on, I go, oh, you've got 2001 on? Huh? He goes... Yeah, dude, I've never been able to figure out what this film is about. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those weird things. Uh, so then I wrote the article and uh, caused a huge amount of, uh, of not just controversy, but uh, had uh, Christina Kubrick, Stanley's wife, wrote to me and told me that Stanley's uh, bookshelves were all on the Kabbalah and alchemy oh and that even she didn't know what the film was about until now. And uh, the producer wrote to me, one of the people that helped him produce it wrote to me and said that every day when he was on the set of uh, 2001, he asked Stanley what the hell that film was, this film was about, and Stanley would just smile slyly. (laughs) Right? And of course, the angel of alchemy is holding its finger up to its lips Hmm. as if to say, you know, be quiet, keep silent. And so these things have to be evoked through through a symbol and art, and that is what 2001 A Space Odyssey really is. Mm. Interestingly enough, of course, 2001 is the date of 911, and um, is in this center year of this last 20-year uh, cartoon, as the Mayans would call it, right, the, right, the measured right. time in 20-year cycles. That's right. And the last 20 years of the cycle, 2001, falls almost exactly in the middle the of it. So you wonder what Stanley knew. And this goes even further. I mean, the, uh, the more, much more has come out since I've written the article. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with what's been discovered um, at Iapetus, which is the moon of Saturn. Sure. But, well, I mean, uh, I, I, well, I've spoken about it a little bit on uh, in my space weather segment, but why don't you uh, talk sure. about it? Sure. Um, but... They did on December 8th, well, actually in October 2004, NASA finally flew the Cassini probe near uh, Iapetus. Now, I just want to say that in the book, 2001, written by Arthur C. Clarke, Mm -hmm. they find the black monolith on Iapetus. It's a very important point to to understand that that this, that this, this transmutative black stone is found on the moon of Saturn called Iapetus. Well, the Cassini probe finally photographed Iapetus. Interestingly enough, Iapetus is a black moon, completely black. 
and it has angles. It has hexagonal or polygonal angles to it. It's not a round moon. It also has a wall, 12-mile-high hmm. wall, exactly at its equator with three grooves in it. It looks sort of like a walnut. Yeah, and the yeah. the um, impact craters are hexagonal, as if the craters had hit this thing and uncovered a substructure of some kind. Like it's not really a moon; it's something else, something artificial, something intelligent. And this just you know gets weirder and weirder when you, when you realize that, of course. Saturn is Kronos, or Father Time, mm. that he holds the scythe and he reaps the souls at the end of the year, right? Mm. Father Time, yeah. the solstice is coming near the end of the year in 2012. Saturn is also the god of the Golden Age. Mm. So, um, I don't know what to make of it all. This goes back into a series of coincidences that take me back through... Jack Parsons, who began NASA, and Aleister Crowley, and the scientists and from Nazi Germany who came here through Operation Paperclip, and uh, who were members of the Saturnian Society in Berlin, and uh, just just one thing after another until you realize that what you're seeing isn't a giant conspiracy. What you're seeing is the program unfolding. That's the difference, I guess, between me. And most people is that I'm not really a conspiracy theorist. Oh. I'm, I believe that there's an overarching, an overmind, to quote Arthur right. C. Clarke, right. that is the program that we are in. And when you are perceptive enough to see the glitches in the program, then you can figure out what the program is saying. But either way, Stanley and Arthur pinpointed the exact moon that intelligence was going to be found on. And ever since NASA discovered this, they have been in utter turmoil. Uh, the head of NASA resigned two days after they released the uh, Iapetus pictures yeah, on December 8, 2004. Yeah. Mm -hmm. NASA's been in complete turmoil ever since. The space shuttle has been canceled. They're now talking about bu actually buying Russian yeah, using the Soyuz. <laughs> you can believe that. I, I, you know, I laugh I, because I'm. I have to laugh, otherwise I'll scream. Because I'm so frustrated, you know, with the space program for the last 35 years. But yeah. that's another one. Now I they're going to use the Soyuz uh, rockets to. Um, for the love of God. And why can't we use, of course, our Saturn rockets right. from Apollo? Why don't we build some freaking flying saucers like we know how to build, you yeah, know, or whatever? They, I, mean. I, I actually believe that they actually do have those. So uh, it's all just a, a sham. Yeah, it's just and, silly. And, and it's, it's, it's really not funny, actually, at all. But the thing is, is that they do release these pictures, right. and they are. And so it's up to us to look at them. And I invite you all um, to go and look at them, I believe that uh, EnterpriseMission.com. Yeah, Richard uh, Hoagland has. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He has a lot of those pictures up. Look at him. You know, I don't expect you to believe him right away, but read his article. Look at some of the other stuff and uh, make up your own mind. I'm not saying that it's artificial. I'm just saying that it certainly looks odd. Yeah, it's and, odd. There's no question about that. You know. Yeah, and so so Stanley. 
Stanley was on to the secret at the end of time, and of course, I guess I don't know exactly how he knew this, except that he was maybe just a great artist. But hmm. all of it is encased in 2001, the the secret of evolution, the secret of transmutation, the secret at the end of time, what we are going or about to become, which is the star child, and all of the rest. And um, it is really, really an amazing film. And it is, in my view, the greatest film ever made. And I never tire of watching it. And um, just... Just astonishing, the things that are in there, the details, the alchemical details that are in there. I invite everyone to read my article. Mm, it's fantastic. Go see the film and then reread my article. That's what I found is generally the best way because you're not going to believe my article if you <laughs> read it. Then you're going to see the film, and then when you go back to reread the article, um, it gains in credibility right. in that process. Yeah, I bought the DVD actually uh, after I read your your piece the first time, and I'd seen the movie many times, and I, and I I was always sort of uh, struck by it, you know. Yeah. Uh, I was always struck by it, and I, as I think many many people were obviously a, a whole generation was sort of struck by it, but nobody knew what the hell was going on. No, I mean I was in that generation, and we would we would I saw the movie maybe 20 times, and actually saw it not on drugs a few times. Right. And, uh, <laughs> one of the few. Uh, and uh, uh, we, uh, we knew, the first time I saw the film, I couldn't get out of my chair. The usher had to uh, budge me out of my chair for the next people coming in because I refused to leave. Mm. I had never, I've never, you know, at that time, you know, we were uh, going to see films like uh, Finnegan's Rainbow and, uh, uh, you know, the really insipid Hollywood stupid films. Mm-hmm. And I'd never known that, you know, that that the film could do that, that wow. you know, a combination of light and sound and music and symbolism. And I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it meant something. And uh, it took literally almost until 2001 for the secret to finally be revealed. What's funny now is that since the article came out, and it really is a, a hugely popular article. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Um, it's, it's just become accepted. If you can get on the web now and type in Kubrick 2001 Alchemy, and there must be 100 articles now just right. accepting it as an open fact that it's about alchemy. Right, it's referenced everywhere. Yeah, and, and, and people are writing their own articles about it. And right. It's great. I love it. And you know, right. I know that Stanley is, is sitting up in hyperdimensional space just smiling ear to ear. Huh, amazing. Yeah. Right, let, let me ask you one more question with regard to this, and it, and it, it makes sense with where, where we're at right, right now. This guy who called, he mentioned that uh, part of your uh, your piece that you wrote Alchemical Kubrick uh, talks about how the obelisk is actually the screen. Uh, yes. And let me and, and let me just finish up real quick, and then I'll let you expand on it. Mm-hmm. He asks, "Is film uh, somehow the new alchemy of the 21st century?" Wow, what a great question! Well, you just hit my favorite subject. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. What alchemy is 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 taking light and organizing it into consciousness. And that's what film does. The projector casts a light on the screen at the back of our minds. And it it, it, it forms these incredible juxtapositions and symbolic, for the first time, you know, where, uh, since um, before, 
before writing, we're actually able to use symbolism as a means of communication again. Right. And we're shedding the literary forms. I love books, so you know, a part of me is sad about this, but the other, the other side of me welcomes this new thing because it, 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 it combines both halves of the brain, the bicameral mind, and so we're now marrying up the two halves of the brain through cinema and film. So, whereas the great work was once encased in cathedrals mm-hmm. or in the pyramids, right. later it was encased inside the literary works of Shakespeare and Milton. Now, at the edge of the end of time, it is cinema. And most filmmakers, of course, are completely failing in their responsibilities towards the transmutation of the human race. But some aren't, and those are the only ones that we should be interested in. Hmm. And so, yeah, uh, so what the greatest revelation, I think, that I was given about 2001 was the shape of the monolith, which is exactly the same shape as the Cinerama hmm. 2.25 to 1 screen Amazing. that Stanley shot. 2001 on. What most people don't realize is that he uh, used a special lens in that film to create a ratio that was 2.25 to 1, which is 1 to 9, which is exactly the uh, dimensions of the monolith. And uh, that in itself right there says that Kubrick is telling you, I am the alchemist, (laughs) and uh, the, the black stone is the movie and it will transform you as it transforms the actors on the screen. And I think that uh, in that act of artistic audacity, he really did cross the line into greatness. Amazing. Absolutely astonishing. It is. I just uh, <sighs> I could go on for hours about Stanley and and his genius. And it's not just that film... After I had written the article um, in uh, um, in 1999, the first draft, uh, Eyes Wide Shut came out about mm, six weeks later. Right, that was what that was the last one that he did, right? Yeah, he died. Actually, he showed it to the Warner Brothers executives, and then he died that night. Uh, right, <laughs> and they cut the film, which is the only Stanley Kubrick film that's ever been cut by somebody, by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, and Warner Brothers won't release Stanley's version. I'm on the board of a committee trying to get them to release it on DVD, and they will not do it under any circumstances, which is vexing to say the least. But no one, Stanley, outside of, you know, touching on the occult and things in The Shining, had never really touched on the occult. So a lot of people thought, a lot of my friends thought maybe I had stretched things beyond the point because there have been not a lot of indication that Stanley really was into it, as I was saying he was. Right. And then Eyes Wide Shut came out, <laughs> and uh, all that talk ceased <laughs> at that point. Yeah, that question was cleared up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, it was a film about, of course, the darkest black magicians that there are. Yeah. And it's a strangely personal film. Mm. Um, you feel as if Tom Cruise is playing Stanley, mm-hmm. and that Stanley really had this happen to him, and I actually believe he did. Yeah, it's a creepy film, man. Yeah, it is a creepy film, and we don't know what they cut out, so yeah. it would be very interesting to find out what Stanley really intended. How much uh, How much was he into the Kabbalah? 
Well, he was into it quite a bit. He was into all these uh, things. Uh, Robert Graves was uh, a, a drinking buddy of Stanley's, and they would uh, sit around in Stanley's old weird castle at night, and Stanley would just listen to Robert Graves going on and on about the white goddess and the mushrooms. And mm. um, I don't know. Uh, he was he was an expert. He was a, a super mm. genius, and I think he just scooped the Kabbalah up and understood it, and then scooped up alchemy and understood it, and compared it to physics and modern science and psychology and symbolism, and it took him four and a half years to make 2001, which is a really long time. And I think he just wasn't going to make a mistake. He wanted to make the ultimate vehicle, the ultimate alchemical film, and um, and he did. And it uh, it stands up to time, and it actually is the uh, precursor for all modern science fiction films, really. Amazing. It's like homage to Stanley one way or another. Yeah, yeah, it was it, it was certainly an, uh, a a real watershed event when that when that film came out. Uh, yes, and still is, and uh, hopefully, you know, people. I'm, I'm I'm raising enough interest so that people, younger people, will go back and and look at it and appreciate. It. Oh yeah, people, if you're out there listening to the program, I I mean, I I almost intuit that everyone has already seen it. If you haven't, my gosh, uh, make sure you don't just go see it. This is one that you want to own. <laughs> I agree. And I don't get anything for saying that, trust me. But, gosh, uh, if there's one for your collection, 2001 is certainly one of them. Just briefly, if you think about his au revoir, um, he made a film about World War One called Paths of Glory, which was really, World War One was really the turning point in, World War, in, in 20th century history. He did another movie called Dr. Strangelove, which was about World War and, 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 and our insane leaders. He did another film, which is almost as important as 2001, called The Clockwork Orange, which is about mind control. Uh, he did a film about bloodlines in Barry Lyndon. He did a film about reincarnation and the haunting of America by ancient Indian spirits in The Shining. And he did a film about... Um, about how we're losing our humanity and turning into iron in a film called Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. So he's he's following a train of of very esoteric ideas that bypassed everyone while they were watching it, and only now are we beginning to realize what this man did. Mm. Yeah, absolutely remarkable what what he what he did, what he's done. Again, yeah. like you say, with very few people even realizing that he was doing it. Yeah, it only now are we beginning to realize it. And, of course, that's what happens with all great art. Huh. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. All right, well, look, uh, bottom of the hour, let's take another break. All right. And we will come back with uh, Jay Widener. Again, information available about Jay and his work at www.jaywidener.com. And we're going to hear a little bit more music here from the Wimshurst machine. This song is called Mystical Sea. We'll be back in just a minute. We'll talk for another half hour with Jay, and then we will move along into the mystical sea, as it were. All right, back in a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Thanks again to Jay Widener for being with us tonight, and uh, thanks to the guys and girls from the Wimshurst Machine for providing the music for the show.
Once again, cool stuff from the Wimshurst machine. That was called Mystical Sea. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, let's get right back to our guest, Jay Widener, on the line with us. Uh, and we've got about 20 more minutes, so let's get what it's worth. All right, Jay, hi. Thanks for sticking around. Yeah. All right, great. Um, another question for you. Since we, we covered the Kubrick stuff real good, and thanks, I wanted to do that. We needed to talk about Kubrick, I think, because it's really important for sure. And, uh, okay, here's a question that I had, sort of a personal one, that has to do with Fulcanelli. We sort of st- started talking about Fulcanelli a little bit toward the beginning of the program. And I had a conversation with a guy after the first show that you and I did regarding a, another character whose name is uh, Rene Schwaller de Lubitz. And he had questioned me about the identity of Fulcanelli and, and, and made an argument that perhaps uh, Schwaller de Lubitz was Fulcanelli. And I did my best to sort of say what I sort of thought was the deal, but I thought maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's really a great question. The, the question actually uh, comes from a book by uh, Andre Vanderbroken called uh, Alchemy. Andre uh, actually studied with Schwaller de Lubitsch in 1960 and 61, right before Schwaller died. Schwaller was a great alchemist who uh, had gone to Egypt and discovered the sacred geometries that lie at the heart of Egyptian architecture and uh, a lot of other things. And uh, was a, a very, very intelligent man, although maybe a bit cold uh, in, in his writing style, but uh, very intelligent and uh, uh, somebody that I've always uh, enjoyed reading. And um, 
Schwaller tells uh, several strange stories to Andre Vanderbroken in the story, saying uh, confusing stories. Uh, at one point, he's saying that Falconelli is uh, uh, another gentleman called Julian Champagne. Mm, yeah. At another point in the story, he's kind of in- intimating that he is Falconelli. Uh, at another point, Isha, his wife, tells Vanderbroken that she remembers back in the old days when Falconelli and Schwaller would walk in the garden with have long discussions. Mm. So it's not really quite clear what's going on, and I was interested in this whole story uh, from the beginning since I read the book and talked to several people who were intimately involved in it, including Robert Lawler, who was friends of, of Schwaller and of, uh, of his daughter, Lucy Lamy. And um, eventually, my what I've pieced together is that <clears throat> Fulcanelli was a teacher of Schwaller and also of another philosopher, René Grenon, hmm. uh, of Julius Evola, of uh, several other people that were in this alchemical milieu in the 20s in Paris. In Paris, right. And... In, it was very impo- it's very important to understand that in 1946 and 47, the OSS, which is the precursor to the CIA, right, right. searched all through France for Falconelli, and that's odd. Yeah, I mean, without they, success. Yeah, without success. That I mean, tells you something too. The fact that they couldn't find them. I mean, if they can't find exactly. you, exactly. <laughs> While Bill Donovan can't find you, you know, you can't be found. And and so I, I, I wondered about Schwaller, and as I thought and thought about it, I realized that Falconelli says several times in his book, Mystery of the Cathedrals, that he is straining his oath to tell you these things. Mm. And I wondered, you know, straining his oath to who? And so my final conclusion is, and I cannot prove it, it's all circumstantial, but it fits with all the facts, and that is that Falconelli is a third party. He is a person who's teaching these alchemical facts to this group of incredible men who really gave birth to the resurgence of alchemy in the 20th century, and they're protecting him. And Schwaller has made an oath himself to protect the identity of Falconelli. I don't think he trusted Vanderbroken entirely mm-hmm. for various reasons. And so he fed a line, a series of lines, of contradictory lines hmm. to Vanderbroken, uh, one minute telling him that Falconelli is champagne, one minute implying that it's him. He, his wife is telling him that Falconelli is a completely separate person. Mm-hmm. And I think that he's going out of his way, as also Rene Grenon did and uh, several other people to protect the real and true identity of Falconelli, whom I believe is a person from a deep and long-lived esoteric school uh, in Europe. And if uh, this school knows the secrets uh, beyond where our physics is today, and that's why the OSS was after him, because mm. they had deciphered Mystery of the Cathedrals, I believe, and realized that he was revealing hyperdimensional knowledge inside the book, and which is what alchemy is. And they considered him not just a risk, but a person who could give them valuable information, mm, as sure. Einstein had. 
And so in order to protect Falconelli's true identity, Schwaller basically BS'd everyone he could and created as many cover stories and as much obfuscation as he possibly could. Very and, uh, in fact, was successful. Okay, great uh, explanation. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, actually, too, in the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, what a trip that whole thing must have been back then. My gosh. Well, All right. you know, it was the end of World War One, and the whole world had been shattered. Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. All right, so regarding alchemy, we were talking about Kubrick, and and he apparently could be considered an alchemist. I mean, would you consider him oh, as yeah. such? Okay. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, so that that means that alchemy as such exists today in our real world. Oh, yeah. And where is it being... Where Where is the work being done? Well, the work has moved from from secret societies and from labs and is moving into the general population. And that is, of course, what will end our current dark age and begin the the next age is when all of the secrets are revealed. History is a process of initiation, and we had to go through the things that we had to go through in order to be ready to receive this knowledge and all of us are going to become alchemists. Not all of us. The ones that matter are going to become alchemists. You are an alchemist. There's many people listening to this show right now or who will listen who are also alchemists, even if they don't know it. Mm. Just like we didn't know that 2001 was a film about alchemy. Mm. But when the key fit into the lock, <laughs> it became obvious. Right. And that's what's going on. Anyone who's working towards the transmutation of the human endeavor is an alchemist. And if they're, uh, there's dark alchemy and there's light alchemy. If they're working towards personal power and self-aggrandizement, well, they're going to, they're going to meet their dragons at the end of the tunnel. If they're working for the betterment of all of us, then they're true masters of light. They are the true alchemists. If they're doing it in a selfless manner and, uh, not trying to uh, uh, line their own pockets, uh, then those are the ones who really are the ones who will matter. And I think that, you know, I honestly believe that Falconelli is the person who jump-started this whole thing. He came out of this secret society at that point in time to create what we're happening, what is happening right now at the end of time. And that's why the Cross of Hende didn't get released until 1957, because it was the the first decade, I guess, of the baby boomer generation, and it was going to take this transmuted generation, and then Gen Xers who were following were also even more transmuted by the initiatory practices of history, and only then could it be understood. My parents' generation... My father has tried to read my books and understand what I'm doing. That poor man is so bedeviled by him. Mm. He has no idea what I'm talking about. And and so that generation just really couldn't get it. It mm. took a different style to get it. And frankly, I think psychedelics played a big role in all of this. Yeah, yeah. And so a generation has emerged and then the generation following it, which finally has the, I guess, the inner technologies to actually get it. Of course, the most transmutative 
sequence in 2001 is the so-called psychedelic sequence uh, because Kubrick was prescient enough to know mm. all of this right. and using it to his great artistic advantage. Well, you, you know, it's interesting when we talk about evolution and even in science, you know, people, at least in, in straight science, even the evolutionary biologists for the great for the most part, talk about evolution with sort of a nostalgic tone, you know, as if it's not still happening, you know. And uh, I think this is something that needs to be talked about. I mean, apparently, you know, with what we know about evolution, it doesn't happen slowly. There are sharp corners and, oh, yeah. and, and, and quick moves. And so uh, certainly within all this stuff is firmly grounded in science, you know. Uh, yes, it is. And, uh, you know, I believe it's Stephen Jay Gold. He called it uh, quantum. I can't remember the name for it now. He, had, he, he finally gave up trying to find the missing link and the mm. intervening species between one species oh, and another. Gosh. And and so he said, okay, well, you know, screw this. Let's just call it quantum leaps. <laughs> so he even postulates an almost mystical, magical uh, place where uh, species leap. But they do leap. Yeah. This is the thing, our own history. You know, our own species 50,000, 40,000 years ago leaped. There was a huge leap. There was another leap 26,000 years ago. And and these leaps are astonishing. The cranium and the brain size increases um, uh, dramatically. Uh, this is amazing, and no one can explain it. Yeah, again, it absolutely defies evolutionary biology. I mean, it does. We're, we're, the, the human ape is sort of the fly in the ointment. Things work out okay with... You know, how did this canary evolve from this other canary? But how did people, you know, that speak like we do and write like you do and other amazing writers come from, you know, as Terence used to say, a monkey that gets ants out of an anthill with a stick? Exactly. And, of course, and that goes all the way back to our linguistic ability and the strange relationship between... Um, the brain and, and language. I was just watching mm. a documentary on Helen Keller, huh. and uh, until she learned sign language at the age of nine or ten, something like that, she had had uh, no memory of those years. In other words, memory doesn't form until you learn language. Mm. So the syntaxes, the synaptic responses of the brain are guided by syntax mm -hmm. and vernacular. And, and, and this is, a, of course, a favorite subject of Terrence. And, uh, and, and uh, another uh, incredible uh, uh, essay called The Mushrooms of Language mm -hmm. um, by Henry, I think his name is Henry Mum. And uh, this is uh, really the secret because language is a hyperdimensional vehicle. Right, it is. And when I speak words, I'm, I'm, I, it is telepathy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm using grunts and groans, monkey grunts and groans, and you're figuring out what I'm saying to you, yeah. and vice versa. And that is magic. That is why magic is always uttered, why magic is always chanted, why singing and music are of such importance to us as a species, because it really is our linguistic ability which is driving our evolution, driving brain function, driving everything. You know, you can 
uh, uh, back in college, I knew one of the homeliest-looking guys I'd ever seen, right? And he could pick up the most beautiful women <laughs> in the world, and I could never figure it out. He had everything going wrong for him. So one night, I followed him into a bar to watch him in action, and he had the most amazing linguistic ability. Really? Uh, he could, you know, sing the angels you know, into existence. And and women, of course, are very sensitive to these things, and, and they would respond in kind. And you know, this is this is really our great gift, and uh, it's what drives us. And uh, oh, if only Terrence was around now. To oh man, it. I mean, he would he, he'd love to jump in right now and tell yeah. us about how naive we've been about the importance of language in our development and history and reality. You know, and, and the ability to uh, heal ourselves. Mm. Uh, yeah. The work of Hans Jenny uh, proves that. You know, language can change, you know, molecular structure. So we can literally chant and hum mm. cancers out of our body. We can rearrange the structure of disease so that it disappears. And and these things are all, we're right on the verge of all of this right, right now. Right. And again, the great majority of this stuff is bearing out now in science. And that's what's blowing all the scientists' minds. They don't know what to do with the data they're getting. <laughs> yeah, in fact, a, uh, one of my favorite uh, kind of New Age philosophers is William Irwin Thompson. Mm, sure. Someone you probably should try to get. He's, he's rather idea, old actually. now, but yeah. he's an incredible guy. And he said, you know, that the mystics stand at the great peripheral of, of the human experience. Mm. And they, they torment science <laughs> because they predict everything that science finds. Yeah. So science is actually second, after actually third. First are the mystics, then the artists, then the scientists, and then finally the politicians. So who cares what the politicians think? Right, right. They're so far behind the curve that they're never going to get a hit. Yeah. And and so you know you look at your mystics and your artists like Stanley Kubrick and J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, um, Chris Carter. And Alex you look Green. at your at your mis at your art your mystics and then your artists. So first you have Krishnamurti mm. and and all the mystics like Gurdjieff and then you have the artists and now guess who's coming along? The scientists mm -hmm. and and they're and they're following right in line, acting like they knew it all along. Amazing. All right, Jay, we've got a couple minutes left. Tell us a little bit more about your documentary that is coming out, and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, well, it's a great film. Like I said before, um, it's going to be, I guess, my own version of, of kind of an alchemical tome. Awesome. And I'm I'm you know seeking to do whatever it is that I can uh, contribute to this uh, great work at the end of time, and it's. Uh, it's going to juxtaposition many, many different points of views from many different traditions and then wend those together to show that the, there is really only one tradition. There is only one reality and that we're all living in it and we're all heading towards this, this great concrescence at the end of time, which is happening. Whether it's a physical thing or a spiritual thing, I can't say. Um, it may be both, or you know, it may mm. just be spiritual, mm. or it may just be physical. Maybe there's something that I don't understand going on, but I don't think so. And I think that that's that's really what this film is about. It's going to be, you know, very exciting, and I hope I can get it into some kind of general release so that I can get as many people to see it as possible. Because 
I think that it's time for the few and the brave and the courageous to step forth and uh, and say what's really going on. Yeah. Well, we got uh, we got six and a half years, and we're gonna we're gonna find out one way or the other, Jay. We certainly are. All right. Well, look, it's been a pleasure as always, and uh, make sure you let me know when uh, when your new DVD comes out, and we'll get uh, get together again, and we can talk more about it on the air. Okay. You bet. May you be alive at the end of the world. Ah, that great Irish toast. I agree, and to you as well. All right. Man. All right, Jay. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All Thanks. right. Take care. All right, everybody. That was Jay Widener. Big thanks to Jay for sticking around late hours of the evening with us on a Monday night, and uh, great stuff coming from Jay Widener, as always. As I mentioned throughout the program, you can find information, certainly, about Jay Widener at www.jaywidener.com. You can also get there from my site. Uh, his links are, uh, are found in a couple of different places on my site at mikehagan.com. You can also find information about the music that we heard tonight, The Wimshurst's Machine, a wonderful band of musicians from Italy, and we've been featuring their music throughout the program tonight. We'll finish things off with one more song from The Wimshurst Machine, or TWM, as I referred to them earlier in the program. And I actually made it through the program saying The Wimshurst's Machine a whole bunch of times without really screwing it up. I'm pretty proud of myself about that. So, anyway, okay, next week we've got... Paradise Newland, or the former Paradise Newland, she goes by the name of Star these days, and we're going to talk with Star about children and birth and water birth and dolphins and some of the amazing clinics that Star is involved with putting together in Hawaii uh, that are water birth centers that are actually, in some cases, going to be dolphin-assisted. Amazing stuff, actually, that uh, that Star and, and, of course, Dr. Michael Heisen are doing in Hawaii. And we'll have uh, uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette the week after that. That's on the 30th of January. The following week after that, John Major Jenkins. And, of course, you've heard uh, uh, Jay mention a couple of these guys uh, during the program tonight. So we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. As I said last week, a crash course in eschatology, as it were. And, you know... What else can you do? Like Jay says, we've got six and a half years, and we'll find out if 2012 really is as significant as it uh, appears to be. (sighs) Wow, who can say? But certainly something is happening. And there are a lot of people that have given us a pretty good idea of what was coming by being pretty accurate about what's already happened. So anyway, may we live in interesting times, as we're told. We certainly do. And we'll come back next week and talk about some more of them. All right? So, until then, thanks. This is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back next Monday with uh, Star. And take care of yourselves until then. All right? One last song from the Wimshurst Machine. This is called Magic Lights. And one more big thank you to Jay Widener for uh, spending time, valuable time, with us tonight. All right, you guys. Take care.